here respected. Expert level information, entertainment, education. Rev here, we got you covered as you hit your destination. Climate rules everything around me. Dream. For those who lost focus, close your eyes and just dream. Open your third eye, now the world is your office. Coolest, coolest show you know the hip hop chorus. All right. Well, man, I am so excited for this interview um, because I have my dear sister, Naomi Klein, and she is an amazing award-winning journalist, columnist, and author um, of the New York Times and international bestsellers, uh, No Logo, The Sock Doctrine, This Changes Everything, No Is Not Enough, and On Fire. Ugh. She is this, which have which been translated into 30 languages. And for me, I love because they are also audible books, which I've been just enjoying listening to them as well. So my sister, how are you? I'm, I am good. And I'm really glad to see you and talk to you and visit with you. Yeah. No, I, I mean, yeah, no, it's good. I mean, we got a lot to get into. And I know... From our world, you are a well-known professor, writer, uh, I guess a climate celebrity uh, in in some aspects because of just the work you do. Uh, But for folks who might not know you, please tell the audience who is Naomi Klein. Um, Sure. Well, yeah, as you said, I I write books. That's the main thing I do. Um, (laughs) I've written about a bunch of them uh, um, now. And I've been writing about climate change for the past 15 years. I came to it, um, my earlier work was around economic justice, human rights, racial justice. Um, My first book was called No Logo, and it was about the rise of corporate power and how Mm -hmm. that was impacting workers, um, artists, um, leading to precarity um, in, in all kinds of precariousness in, in, in all, in all kinds of ways. And, um, and then I, I, I started, uh, and I think this is sort of maybe where we first connected. I started writing about the imposition of brutal economic policies through shocks, through, through warfare. Right. I started writing about the invasion of Iraq and, and I and I developed this um, framework called disaster capitalism or the shock doctrine to describe a process of using large scale shocks to push through privatization, deregulation, brutal economic austerity that hurts the poor most of all. Um, and that brought me to New Orleans um, in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. And so I never saw myself as like, an environmental writer or climate change person, but Katrina kind of pulled me in and taught me a bunch of lessons really fast about the intersection of climate change, um, capitalism, uh, white supremacy, you know, as it did so many people who, who saw that, that disaster unfold in, in such profoundly unjust ways. No, actually, I didn't know that angle. I mean, I knew that angle because you're right. For those who are listening, I, I actually am a member of Veterans for Peace, and I am also a member of Iraq Veterans Against the War. I was a former uh, officer in the Air Force who spoke out against the Iraq West, where I first met my dear sister, 
and, and, and that life. And then as I went from no war to no warming, I saw her work in regards to my home state of Louisiana and saw definitely with her work in regards to the, the shock doctrine in regards to New Orleans. Um, in, in, your, in, in, in your viewpoint, was the inconvenient truth the climate crisis or was the inconvenient truth white supremacy or both? I think it was both and underlying both. The, in, the, the, the most inconvenient truth of all for elites was that you couldn't address the climate crisis without simultaneously upending the whole system, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think the stage of the climate movement that was kind of embodied by that film, by The Inconvenient Truth, was that climate movement still in, it, in its own state of denial, right? Because it was like, here's this huge crisis, but here's a little, here's a pie chart. And if you change your light bulbs here and you introduce fuel efficiency there, we'll just get this thing done in this really technocratic way. You'll barely notice it. As Arundhati Roy says, you know, how uh, middle-class environmentalism asks the question, how do we change without changing? Um, And so I think that the inconvenient truth, that even the inconvenient truth wasn't willing to confront back in what that film came out in 2006, 2007, was actually, no, it's not going to be technocratic solutions. It's going to be going to the deep, deep roots of that intersection between capitalism, white supremacy, what Cedric Robinson called called racial capitalism, um, that created the climate crisis and, 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 and all of the other crises that are intersecting with it. No, I, I agree. And, you know, as I think about it and we look back, your, your, your work was prophetic um, in many ways. Um, but what we're in a new moment, as you know, and in your work, you have laid out the path to break down um, disaster capitalism and it's designed to immobilize and exploit. So as many are still celebrating a new regime in the Biden-Harris administration. Can you break down how this shock doctrine played out in your experience of multiple crises, the pandemic, the assault on the poor, Black communities, and the environment, and how is the shock doctrine playing out right now, especially for the most marginalized? Sure. Um Lots of ways. And just to like, just to be clear about what what we mean by the shock doctrine. Um, so, this the shock doctrine refers to a strategy, a, a theory of power, right? Which I argue has been um, very much in play over the last half century, where we've seen the rise of this really um, gloves off form of capitalism that is sometimes called neoliberalism, right? Which is identified with Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher in the UK. And this was just um, uh, just capitalism without the sort of bones thrown to working people, right? Um, that were, were, were seen as necessary when communism was a real threat to capitalism, where you sort of had to had to let people unionize and 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 give people some kind of social safety net or else the fear was they would actually become socialists right 
And so the neo, what we call neoliberalism is a lot of jargon, right? But neoliberalism, I sometimes describe as like capitalism lying on the couch in its underwear saying, what are you going to do? Leave me. Like it's, 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 it's capitalism that is not afraid of competition, which is, which is not a good thing because then you don't actually have to, to throw those bones, you know, you don't have to make those concessions. Um, and the argument that I, that I made in the shock doctrine is that if we look at where this ideology has advanced, it has very often advanced on the backs of large-scale crises and shocks where societies were in such a state of profound trauma and in such a state of emergency that they weren't be able to uh, participate in political life in the same way. And, and Katrina was a huge eye-opener for me in this um, because it was just so brutal, right? Because as you know, the, the, the people of New Orleans were literally not in their city. They had been forcibly evacuated, but not even evacuated. That's not a correct term because evacuation implies a plan to return. Exactly. People, people were, were, were shipped all over. Uh, One-way ticket. A one-way ticket had gunpoint in many cases, um, you know, in every, to every state. It was extraordinary. You know, I, I often find that some things become more shocking with time as opposed to less shocking, you know? And you think about that. You think about just that strategy of spreading people out to every single state, up to Alaska, you know, with no way of coming back. And while they're gone, you know, I, I, I opened the shock doctrine with a quote from the late, Free, extreme free market economist Milton Friedman, who wrote an article in the Wall Street Journal and said, um, you know, New Orleans schools are closed. It, the parents and teachers are spread throughout the, the country. This is a crisis. It's also an opportunity, an opportunity to radically remake the education system. And then he proposed giving parents vouchers that they could use in private schools. And and now New Orleans is the most privatized school system in the United States. It's, it became a laboratory for charter schools. So that strategy, right? And that's just one example. And you know the others, you know, demolish public housing that wasn't even damaged by the storm. So, of course, this affects poor, overwhelmingly Black and Latino populations more than anyone else. Um, and it's it's a land grab. In the case of, 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 of the public housing, it's obviously a land grab, but you know, teachers unions talked about what was happening with schools as an educational land grab. <clears throat> We've seen this pattern repeat after every single crisis, including COVID. And so if we go back to the to the, that, those eons ago, to the Trump era, Betsy DeVos was doing the same thing. I mean, people say, well, why wasn't she supporting schools and, and giving them what they needed? Um, because she wanted, she wanted, she, she, you know, the animating force in Betsy DeVos's life is that she does not believe in public education. Mm -hmm. And she saw the pandemic as an opportunity to um, advance the same thing Milton Friedman was advancing in the aftermath of Katrina, a voucher school system. Um, and, and so we've seen a lot of that happening. And, you know, I think that there's a there's good reason to worry that when schools are finally able to reopen, uh, a lot of them are going to be facing uh, a severe funding crisis because they've lost a lot of families. Um, they've lost their tax bases. Um, and so this is going to be a real test for the new administration. There are so many examples of using the pandemic for disaster capitalism. You know, I mean, the tech companies have been really busy. Um, and a lot of them would like to hold on to a lot of the kind of virtual learning, virtual health care, because 
this is a kind of backdoor privatization, right? You've got public schools that are suddenly moving to Google and Zoom and so on. Um, the Trump administration used COVID to roll back every kind of regulation, but particularly environmental regulation. Um, so, you know, this is a big challenge for, for, for the Biden administration because they've been busy, but a lot of what they've been busy doing is just undoing, right? Mm-hmm. And that's not enough because it was a crisis before Trump. It was a crisis during the Obama years. And so even if you just, un- you know, if you spend all your time just undoing the damage, you, you don't end up even at the starting point of the Trump era because, of course, climate change has been getting worse all this time. So we actually need more kind of catalytic action. No, I, I agree. Let me, let me ask you a question. Now that you look back, uh, Katrina was now 15 um, and a half years ago. Um, and we look, you look back on that. And I know for me, as you know, when I went back home to New Orleans and Louisiana, you know, my life was threatened by the police in Gretna specifically because I wanted to uncover when they stopped the people on the bridge and myself and Cynthia McKinney, um, who was a congressman at the time, you know, our, we, we, our lives were literally threatened. And so we were in a meeting back then talking about this. And, and one of the things that came up is one of the elders in the meeting said this. I never will forget it. Uh, she mentioned to us, she says, why are we so surprised that they moved us thousands of miles away um, when they did that through the slave trade, when they gave us a one-way ticket and they stole not only our, our, our city, but they stole our continent. And so as you look back, is, the shock, is it really a shock doctrine or is it a status quo doctrine? that we have here in these called United States of America? I mean, these absolutely, these are continuities. There is, you know, there, this is not, nothing brand new uh, about this strategy. Um, uh, you know, I quote Machiavelli's The Prince, you know, do it all at once. Like this is a, this is the, the authoritarian strategy is to exploit that state of trauma. Um, and certainly what happened in New Orleans um, and, you know, what is called increasingly called climate gentrification Mm. is a continuation of the transatlantic slave trade, colonialism, indigenous land theft. I mean, the foundations of the country. And this is why, I guess, coming back to your question about the inconvenient truth, if we're willing to look at this crisis with our eyes open, it requires that kind of depth of analysis and that the band-aids of we can just fix this with a few little tweaks and don't go too deep, you know, never brought us anywhere, really. I mean, if we just measure emission reductions, um, you know, as Greta Thunberg says, like enough with the blah, blah, blah. Um, we've been, you know, elites have been talking about reducing emissions for more than 60 years. And, um, mm. wow. I, so much to say there. I, I have so much to cover. So I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to, I want to keep, keep, keep moving, but that there's a lot there, as you know, there's so much there. And I think that I guess well, I'm interested in your recollections, you know, and it's, it's one of the things that's, <laughs> It's striking, you know, that you took that route, you know, like, like 
as a as an anti-war activist. And a lot of the folks, you know, who were on the front lines were coming from 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 that the anti-war movement at that stage. And, you know, I think it's one of the big problems of the left broadly is is the impact of siloing, you know, of just like carving the world up into these chunks that actually belong together, you know, and, (laughs) and the connection between militarism and climate change is obvious, right? I mean, these, these are wars largely fought for oil and to safeguard fossil fuel infrastructure. And of course the Pentagon is the world's largest, I think, consumer of of fossil fuels in the world. Um, And, 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 and yet, (laughs) We, we so often fail to make those connections. And there's this idea that it'll sometimes somehow be easier and more manageable if we, if we, if, if we segment, if we silo, right? And it's, it's the opposite, you know? It actually makes us weaker because these obvious connections uh, and these obvious intersections are, are just ignored. Even though, even when you have such mm. obvious lived experience like your own, like it's through... Iraq war resistance that you end up, you know, in, in the climate movement. Well, no, well, first shout out to Damo Smith, uh, who was such an amazing person for me because he actually was breaking those silos when I was, uh, when I was Iraq war resisting (laughs) and, and was, and had black voices for peace and had a place for black voices to, to, to live. Um, I, w- I would just say this. I would think that, you know, and and I would hope maybe this is my plug to you and me that maybe we should co-author a book here called No War, No Warming, No White Supremacy. Um, that may be a good a good project for us to take on. But one of the things I would say, yeah. Um, I think you know this, but this is like my, my little history of like why, why I'm People often wonder, like, is she Canadian? Is she American? What's she doing butting into a U.S. business? I thought she was Canadian. And the truth is I'm both. And the reason I'm both is because my parents were Iraq war resistors and came Mm. to Canada um, like a bunch of, you know, thousands of of, uh, U.S. draftees didn't didn't believe in that war. And, and, And my parents came before I was born. So I was born in Canada. Um. But they, because they're American, I got to be both, even though, even though my parents were, 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 were. No, good for them. No, well, good for them. And, and good that you get to be both. Uh, that, that's, that's a great piece. But to your point of the siloing, I think the reasons for me, when I would go out to the anti-war rallies, it would be, it was, again, predominantly white. It was a predominantly white space. Um, and then after, what, I was already engaged with environmental justice because I was very close to Dr. Ben Chavis with the, at the Hip Hop Summit. Um, I was in New York, um, and he obviously had coined the term environmental racism. And so he would talk about that in North Carolina and the history of that a lot. And so we kind of interwove that into the beginnings of hip hop kind of policy and politics back in 2000, 2002. But one of the things there um, around that time was um, when I when I went to the environmental rallies post Katrina, it was again mostly all white, and they were literally trying to put um, the work that we were doing at the caucus, hip hop caucus, in a box. It was like, okay, well, you should be with environmental justice, and they'd be like, well, no, we should be because that's what we environmental justice is, the climate crisis. But they were they weren't saying it 
they were doing it as a framing. And it was they were siloing, it was a creating a siloed, progressive, segregated climate movement um, in that aspect. So in that process, we we actually were we we refused to be in, in those buckets because our people our people weren't dying in those buckets. And so we, yeah. And public housing was being demolished. None of that was identified as a climate issue. Um, and this is just how we lose, you know? It's just like people think that this is like, oh, this is being like politically correct and woke and all this. And it's, it's not about that. It's actually about how you win. Um, because how you lose is by carving up a movement into little boxes and failing to make incredibly obvious connections that will make a movement more urgent because you're actually fighting for people's homes and schools right. and rights jobs. Is that intentional, though? Because I think that sometimes, you know, with our modern environmental movement, the minute that issues become, let's be very honest, black, brown, and indigenous, they, they, they leave. It's almost like a white flight approach to that process. And so if you bring in Palestine, for instance, or if you bring in schools, anything that's regarding just liberation of our people, there's a taking off. Uh, it gets too heavy. It, it comes becomes too comfortable. So is that also part of the reason? I mean, I'm just curious in, in this aspect. You know, like I said, I'm not, I don't, like, I don't come to this issue via mainstream environmentalism. You know, I, um, I came to it via like a study of like the history of shocks and capitalism and ending up in New Orleans and going like, wait a minute. I don't think I, I had been telling myself a story like a lot of people, like I had my own boxes, which was I'm focused on wars. I'm focused on economic like massacres. Um, I'm focused on like daily, like emergencies. And there's a bunch of big, really well-funded green groups and they're focused on climate change. And, you know, like that's like, sure, it's an issue, but it's like one issue I don't personally have to worry about. Like, I just saw it as like somebody else's, like, like I, somebody else's issue. Okay. Be, I'm being honest. Like I thought like I was focused on more urgent survival issues and, and, and it was Katrina that like op opened my eyes. And, and I mean, mm. obviously it wasn't as simple as that. I was part of the anti-corporate globalization movement and, um, you know, when I wrote No Logo, I had a chapter on on the Niger Delta and and the movement against Shell and and Ken Sarawiwa and like you know that's the roots of the environment global environmental justice movement in lots of ways, but that was not climate. You know, like I, that was like local pollution. That's the way I I understood it. And 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 so, um, so yeah. So I just want to sort of cop to that. Like I think it's not only the big green groups that put up those barriers in a way. Like I think I, you know, I, I grew up in the neoliberal era and I did my own version of siloing and then realized, wait a minute, um, all of these issues intersect. Um, this is a glimpse of the whole, the future where we're headed, where we have heavy weather intersecting with weak and neglected infrastructure that has been systematically underfunded for half a century and white supremacy overlaying the whole thing, which blames the victims 
um, and abandons them and creates this hierarchy of humanity in the middle of a disaster. That's what we saw, right, in, in New Orleans or one way mm-hmm. of, of looking at it. Um, but to your question around what are they thinking when they, when, they, when they do their version of this, which is like, first we save the world, then we worry about poverty and racism and war, because if we don't save the world, then none of that will matter. I mean, I've literally heard that argument. No, um, so have I. Yeah. yeah. I've seen the argument. Yeah. Um, and when I wrote this changes everything, you know, I, folks took me aside and they're like, why are you making our job harder by talking Mm. about capitalism and reparations and colonialism? Like you're weighing us down with all these unpopular issues. So in answer to your question, what I, what I discovered or, or one, look, I think there's many answers to the question. One of them is just about power and feeling threatened, right? Like, that these are groups that are led overwhelmingly by white people. And if frontline movements are leading, then it means that those folks are not leading. It means that they're having to learn to follow. Um, and people hold on to power. People hold on to control. So I think that there's like a personal answer there. But then I also think that there was genuinely a perception, and this is what I was told when I, was, when I wrote This Changes Everything, was that climate was popular, winnable, you know, and these other issues were unpopular, right? Um, and I think you see the same thing, you know, mm. in, in these arguments within the Democratic Party around, like, are we going to appeal to suburban voters or, you know, and it's, 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 you can't pry apart what, obviously, you can't make that argument unless you yourself are discounting the huge numbers of, of black and brown people who are engaged with these issues and you somehow don't see them as part of a winning coalition or in fact, the key to a winning coalition. Um, So yeah, I mean, I think that that was the argument that was made to me was like climate change is popular. It can appeal across um, partisan divides. Um, Everyone has grandkids. This is kind of like a very broad tent. And if you talk about all those issues you mentioned, white supremacy, Palestine, God forbid, you know, that you're going to narrow, right? So they positioned, they positioned climate as this big tent that everybody can get under. But as you say, everyone doesn't get under it because if you are fighting for your own survival and, and this movement so-called is not talking about it, then you're not going to join that movement because it's not your movement. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. That's, that's, I don't, what do you think it is? No, no. Well, first of all, you just said a lot there. Thank you for that. That was that was the that was uh, that was let's say a mouthful, and I hope that people really meditate on what you said. I guess just respond to what you just said. My my response would be then: How can you expect a world to transition from fossil fuels to clean energy when you can't transition from white supremacy? And so, and I, that goes back to this also: that if it's unpopular. And how can we expect, quote unquote, environmental movement to truly be an anti-racist movement if, if, if they feel this weighs them down? In other words, if they really feel like this becomes too heavy or awkward or uncomfortable um, or unwinnable. I think that's the thing that really touched me when you said that. that but they're the, wrong. I mean, the, the, literally the opposite is true. You know, you think you th- think about something, you, you know, a uh, uh, standing rock, you know, which which was 
absolutely game-changing in terms mm-hmm. of building public support for, for stopping fossil fuel infrastructure, entirely Indigenous-led, um, and rooted in place, and grounded in core environmental justice principles, and the quality of the fight, right? The way people fight when they are fighting for their water, when they're fighting for their future, um, when they're fighting for their land, is different than the way we fight when we're fighting our, around an abstract issue that doesn't, that, that yes, we're concerned about, but doesn't impact us tomorrow, right? Um, and, 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 and the quality of the fight, you know, when I, what I mean that by the quality of the fight is like, I mean, my God, the courage, right, in, in Standing Rock, um, it's not the same. And I don't, I don't want to diss, you know, having a big march. I think big marches matter, but that's different than living on the land for, for months and, 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 and fight and standing up to water cannons and attack dogs. Um, that, that, that's a different kind of fight. And I think mm-hmm. the lesson of that is that when, um, I think there's so many lessons from Standing Rock, but, but when people are fighting for, for their lives, they're, they're willing to take much bigger risks. They're willing to um, fight a hell of a lot harder. Um, and movements like that are the movements that win throughout history, right? And so this idea that it is somehow more strategic to have this broad tent that is going to agree on this sort of baseline mushy demand of climate action, whatever that means, right? Not even specifying what we mean by climate action, but just climate action, you know? Um, a movement like that isn't going to have that quality of fight, isn't going to mm, have that, that right. tenacity, right? And we are up against very powerful forces, right? I mean, that's the thing, that's the, that's the flip side of this that we always have to remember. We're, we're up against the richest companies on planet Earth with the ability to have their own private armies. So if we are not willing to fight like hell, we are going to lose, you know? No, and I think that's, that's, that's very real. I think when I think about um, so many of those who really literally almost gave their lives during Standing Rock, um, when I think about our, our sisters and brothers throughout the world, like Berta Caceres, who have given their lives um, for this movement, I, I sometimes wonder if the, 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 the quote, environmental movement is getting in the way because of that. Because actually, we know that the fossil fuels business plan means a death sentence for these communities. But on the other side, we also know that the the movements, in other words, from particularly from black and brown and indigenous and people of color, if they, they if what they want means a death sentence to the fossil fuel industry. Um, I almost feel like sometimes the 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 the, the, the environmental movement plays referee in between. Like, I feel like sometimes they get in between to kind of placate, almost like they have an escape route. They have a place where they can go. Well, you know, we can just, you know, we can always dip from this fight. And so it feels like sometimes they marginalize um, those who are literally dying. And I think, and I think that's, a, that's something that we have to deal with in our movement. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I mean, I, I get into some of this and this changes everything. I mean, and all, all big green groups aren't alike, as you know. Um, there are some big green groups that are very clear. They don't take money from, from corporations. They, um, they, you know, they, 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 
they have core principles around around aligning with frontline communities and you know whether or not they live up to those principles is <laughs> you know is a separate debate um but but you know i have a whole chapter uh um in in this changes everything about just the scandalous um funding of some of the biggest green groups um <laughs> like nature conservancy i mean i'll name them <laughs> like yeah. edf nature Not conservancy a, listen, I mean, listen you're on the coolest show you you know this 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 is your place to listen listen you know they're funded <laughs> by wall street yeah edf i mean a group like edf is not powerful because it has a mass membership you know um and 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 in it and because it is a big movement it's powerful because it has tons of money and it has tons of money because it is funded you know it started getting a massive amount of funding from wall street in in the 1980s and so uh, the, yes a group like that i think deliberately plays that 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 referee role quote unquote referee but but the deals that get made systematically sacrifice frontline communities um uh, so it's like, yeah, you can keep polluting, but we'll let you buy some offsets over here. And so the community that is being polluted, which is invariably or almost invariably a community of color, invariably a poor community, um, is 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 sacrificed in the name of of some compromise. And then you 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 buy a forest somewhere in the global south, and the indigenous people who used to have access to that forest for their livelihoods get locked out turns into a kind of a tree museum. And then, you know, it's just another form of financial, um, you know, gameplay, right? You're moving carbon around, around the, 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 the financial markets like derivatives. Um, and that's the role that group, uh, that, that, that some of these groups have played. Um, really sinister roles in my view. I, I, I tell a story and this changes everything about the nature conservancy um, actually uh, um, getting into the oil drilling business on a piece of land that they were protecting. Uh, um, and, and they, they decided to make some money by allowing oil drilling on, on, on conservation lands of the, that, that were theirs. Um, you wouldn't think a, a, a green group would itself be drilling for oil, but there's some shocking stuff going on. I do think it is important to differentiate between that kind of quote unquote, big green and, 350 and Greenpeace um, and, and Friends of the Earth. I mean, they, you know, they, they, they're not all alike, but they all have a bit, Sierra Club, you know, a, a, a big, big problem. Um, some of them are taking it more seriously than, than others. Um, uh, in some ways, I think it's too kind um, because referee would involve some kind of like negotiation with the most, you know, with both sides. And many of these deals get made, got made without any communication with, with the people who were being sacrificed. It was just a backroom deal that, that people found out about after the fact, right? Hmm. Well, there's so much there. I think that um, we have to really look at, you know, what it means to be an ally and what it means to be, to be an accomplice and also what it, what it means to, accountable and measurable. I think a lot of times I've seen, you know, small groups and communities who actually work directly with fossil fuel companies because they have, because they've been, haven't even been touched by environmental organizations. And, got, and they've come and say, well, we've gotten five or $10,000. Um, and then they're being, they're, they're being 
run over the coals. And I'm like, well, why don't we support him? I mean, well, why don't, I mean, how can you, how can you then have a hundred million dollars or 50 million dollars or 20 million dollars? And then you're running these groups over the coals for taking 20,000. Why don't we figure out how to give those organizations and groups, take away the need to want to work with, um, but that's a, but that's a much bigger piece. This actually, this, this interview, and thank you so much. This is amazing. Uh, this conversation is actually going to play on earth day. Uh, uh, so, um, and that's directly because the, the new administration is hosting a World Climate Summit on Earth Day. So kind of wanting your voice to be a voice that parallels that. So knowing that what you're saying now is literally going to be heard on Earth Day, what do you want to see happen um, to, to, make it, to make that summit meaningful and share any specific ideas you have on the relationship between Biden and the prime minister of Canada? Happy future Earth Day. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think that we have a real potential in this moment. Um, And I think the, the, the greatest opportunity that we have is that for a long time, a lot of us have recognized that 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 we are up against such a profound crisis um, you know that it does require a scale of action and mobilization that has not been seen since the second world war and um, the trouble was that most of us have never had a lived experience with that speed of change, with that scale of change, right? We can look at history and say, oh, well, didn't they do something where they you know, retrofitted all the factories and, and you know, changed everything virtually overnight? Or you know, we, we can think about what happened during, during the New Deal with you know, dozens and dozens of new programs and rural electrification and massive funding for the arts and um, and and two billion trees planted by the Civilian Conservation Corps and go like, okay, well, they were able to do that in the 1930s, but, you know, we're not going to be able to do that with capitalism roaring at the, at the speed that it's roaring now. Um, you know, and obviously these historical... Uh, a reference points are it's not to say we want to imitate it because both of them ex- systematically discriminated against and excluded um, black people, immigrants, women. Um, so we need we need something we've never done before, right? But you know the reason why I think it is worthwhile thinking about moments in history where deep transformation was on the agenda including reconstruction, um, is that it shows that it is possible, that it isn't human nature that is incapable of changing, right? It is something about our current system. Mm. And the reason why I say that we are at a really unique moment is that the, the, the argument against changing like that, at that scale, at that speed in the face of the climate crisis, was that our economy wasn't in crisis, by on its own terms, right? That the that the economy was growing. Um, you know that you you can't um, that 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 there. You know the, these were responses to crisis. Going back to where we started, right? Um, these were responses to, to 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 countries decimated by war, by 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 the Great Depression, by the Dust Bowl, 
uh, by the Civil War. And so what I would hear, even just like a year and a half ago, was like, yeah, but we, we can't do that when the economy is doing well, right? Um, and what, what, one of the arguments that I made in favor of a Green New Deal style response was that it was recession proof, was that if there was another economic crisis and capitalism produces these crises um, cyclically, that this was a ready-made response to how to get an economy back on track in a way that's, that, that simultaneously addressed other crises that we face, economic, massive economic inequality, systemic racism, and of course the climate crisis. And so with our moment with COVID, we need obviously responses on this scale. And now we have all experienced something that those of us born after the Second World War had never experienced before, which is this kind of radical change. You know, in a period of a year, we have all changed the way we live radically, right? We have all had to ask ourselves core questions about what is essential in life. Um, and, and that memory that we now have, this very recent memory that, yes, it is possible to change in the face of a crisis. That's the kind of thing that we need to harness now in the face of the climate crisis. Joe Biden was elected saying we're going to listen to the science. Um, and we need, we need that commitment in the face of the climate crisis. We need to be guided by the best science, which tells us that global emissions need to be cut in half in the next decade. And for rich countries like the United States that have been polluting the most historically, we need to do more and faster. Um, and we also have all these other crises and we can't pick and choose. So we need to multitask like crazy. We need to solve multiple problems at once. So I think that, the, that, that Biden has already adopted the framework of the climate justice movement in many ways. Uh, the thing I'm most heartened by, and then there's plenty I'm not heartened by, but the thing I'm most heartened by from this administration is that in a moment, like in every other moment of crisis since climate change has been a political issue, whenever there's another crisis that could potentially compete with climate change, climate change has been immediately sacrificed, right? So there's, there's focus, then there's a financial crisis. Sorry, we can't care about climate change. We've got to worry about the economy. I think what is, what is really worth, um, paying attention to about what we're seeing from this administration and it is a victory of the movement is that mm. Biden has, has been forced to say, no, we have, a t we, we, in a, we are in a time of at least four crises, economic health, climate and racial injustice. Mm. Um, and, and, and to keep them all front and center and to say, we have to have, we have to have solutions that respond to all of these crises. And if he can, um, continue with that framework, continue to be guided by both science and justice um, as at, you know, in this moment, I think it will have impacts around the world. I mean, you mentioned Justin Trudeau and, and, and Canada. I mean, all, already, frankly, the fact that Biden um, moved to, to cancel Keystone um, is putting Trudeau to shame. And I mean, this is one of the, the things that I, I think, you know, in, in, in the U.S. where Obviously, during the Trump years, the focus was necessarily on getting rid of Trump. But um, one, of the, one of the most dangerous things about Donald Trump internationally was that he lowered the bar so much 
that other governments were able to do incredibly little and still look halfway decent because everybody looks good in comparison to Trump. So this, you know, when it came to Justin Trudeau, who came to power uh, just before Trump um, and uh, and positioned himself as an anti-Trump, it was just too easy to do, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, he did this on immigration and he did this on climate and 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 he he did it on you know gender issues. Um, but the truth is what he did was extremely symbolic. Um, you know, he would put out memes and at the same time he bought oil pipelines to push them through indigenous land. And so, um, you know, I think that if we can keep the pressure on Biden, um, to do more. And so that means not just canceling Keystone, but Dapple and, and line three, um, and really what we need is, as you know, the keystone principle, which is no new fossil fuel infrastructure, period. We are in a crisis. We need to wind down existing fossil fuel projects. We need a just transition. We need to leave no worker behind. We need to make sure that frontline communities are first in line. I mean, all of the, these core principles of environmental justice. Um, but, you know, if, if, if the U.S. is, is doing that, um, then it becomes a lot harder for governments like Canada to talk out of both sides of their mouth as they've been doing. And they've really gotten a free ride in the Trump era. Um, you know, Trudeau, like like I said, I mean, he, he spent billions of dollars buying a tar sands pipeline, literally buying it from an American company um, that wanted out because there was so much indigenous resistance mm. to this pipeline that goes from Alberta to British Columbia. It's a massive pipeline expansion, the Trans Mountain uh, Pipeline. Um, that 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 Kinder Morgan said, "We're out. We're not going to build this thing." Justin Trudeau comes in, spends I think seven billion dollars buying the pipeline, and says, "We are going to build it. We're going to personally build it." This is a guy who's saying, "I'm a climate leader," right? And after five years in power, you can't point to a single major green. Um, infrastructure project that this government has done that has really changed the country, right? They have spent five years fighting over oil pipelines. It's such a waste. It's so amazing. And so this is why, you know, if, if, if the U.S. can really lead on showing like climate action isn't just about fighting over a carbon tax or, you know, carbon trading or whatever it is, some abstraction, it's about investment that improves people's day-to-day lives the most discarded and the most excluded, first of all. So it means, you know, state of the art, free public transit or extremely affordable public transit. Um, It means green public housing, beautiful green public housing, um, you know, that, 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 that is the kind of place that people are going to want to live that, that really improves quality of life. And you have some like real showcases like that. Um, I think that's going to be catalytic because what's so you know, scandalous about what what governments like like Canada have done, and while claiming to be climate leaders, is they really haven't shown people how this can improve their lives. Right? It's still it's still framed as something that's taking taking something away from you, as opposed to something that is actually going to be um, enlivening and, and improving daily life. No, that I mean that's no, and that's so that whole you heard it right here. You, you, you got the rundown, so, on, on Earth Day. My last few questions, I want to really hit this topic. I think this is very important to get into race and class in this moment. Because last year, we've had a, a year 
a, a reckoning. And so let me just ask these kind of almost, uh, I don't know the, the term you would say, but I'm going to, uh, I guess, just knock them all. I'm trying to knock through them here, right here. We get to the end of this conversation. So um, the first one here, I just want to simply ask is, you know, what is your race and class analysis? And, and like, in and, and like 30 seconds too, I'm going to get, I'm going to get the rest of these too. <laughs> I mentioned earlier um, the term racial capitalism from Cedric Robinson, the late Cedric Robinson. Um, and I think it is really useful in the context of understanding the climate emergency, um, because what that teaches us is that what we call capitalism today was built um, through the hierarchy of humanity known as white supremacy, that, you, that, that the original inputs to the industrial economy that created the excess capital that fueled the industrial revolution were stolen African people and stolen indigenous land. And those original thefts that which required an ideology of you know quote unquote scientific racism that 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 created this hierarchy of humanity that that that's that uh, that creates the rationale to say it is somehow okay to steal these people's land and to steal these people because they aren't exactly people. Um, and we have the manifest destiny to do so, creates the excess capital that then unleashes the power of fossil fuels that then creates climate change. That's the story we're in. That's the story we're living in. Um, you can't have an economy built on fossil fuels without sacrificial people. Mm. There's no way to do this without polluting people, without polluting lands. And so there needs to be that race and class hierarchy that says some people are more disposable than other people. And that is where we're going to get our workers. And that is where we're going to site our industry. And that's where we're going to mine the lands. And so it's built in from the beginning. And there's no way to pry it apart. We've tried to pry it apart and we've built our satellite movements. And that's how we've deliberately weakened ourselves. Um, that's how you create a weak movement. Mm. Thank you. Um, three more questions. Rep rapid fire is the word I was looking for. Rapid fire head. <laughs> uh, in uh, your book, On Fire and Elsewhere, you have written about your learning about climate reparations from Black and Indigenous people at, at COP. Um, how does that learning show up in your work? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, you know, it's interesting. The, the very first article I wrote of, about climate change was a piece on climate reparations called Climate Rage um, for Rolling Stone in 2009. Um, and I actually um, had been working on a piece about reparations, not about climate, but about, about reparations for slavery and colonialism, um, and had heard from a group of Bolivian uh, activists and politicians that they believed that because these issues were all connected, um, that, that climate was like the best way into under, uh, actually winning real reparations. Uh, and so I guess one of the ways it shows up in my work is when I, when I wrote This Changes Everything, I started with a quote from a Bolivian climate change negotiator named Angelica Navarro calling for a Marshall Plan for planet Earth. Um, 
And this is, you know, we use these different phrases like Green New Deal now, but you know, that, that's what she was calling for. She was calling for a global Green New Deal. She called it a Marshall Plan for Planet Earth, a mobilization of, 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 of technology and resources of the scale uh, never seen before that would recognize the debt owed to the global South by the global North and also the global South in the global North, right? Those sacrificial mm. communities, those colonies um, within within wealthy countries like the United States. I mean, I would argue big parts of Louisiana fit the bill, um, certainly Puerto Rico. Um, and so in recognizing the core injustice of the climate crisis, which is that the, that it, it is a crisis cr largely created by the wealthy, that, um, that, that 70 percent of emissions come from the 20 percent richest people on the planet. Um, and yet the effects of those emissions are overwhelmingly felt by the people least responsible for the crisis, the lowest emitters, the people with the smallest carbon footprint, there is a core injustice baked into this crisis, which if we recognize would demand a transfer of resources within rich countries from rich to poor and between rich and poor countries. And that's, that's, the, that's the revolutionary power of climate change. And I don't think it's an inconvenient truth, Rev. I think it's a convenient one. <laughs> this mm. is because what is inconvenient are the scars that uh, of, of, of injustice, white supremacy and inequality that scar our world. And, and if we actually reckon with the roots of this crisis and, and that core economic, in, uh, that core injustice of the climate crisis, it demands a transfer of resources. And that's actually the way you build something like a fair world. Um, so I don't see it as inconvenient at all. I actually mm. see it as justice. Mm. No. And kind of beautiful. Yeah. Well, this is my last question. So I, I will cut out all the ones so we can make sure you, and thank you so much for your time. And this, so this is, your last, this is your last one. First of all, thank you again. But here you go. Specifically, what is your contribution to the future? And how are you making sure that Black people exist in it? Wow. Well, I don't know what my contribution to the future is. Um, uh, you know, I write books, send them out into the world. People use them. <laughs> some of them throw them through windows. Some of them <laughs> fix the mistakes. And some of them, you know, find some phrases that are useful for organizing. I try to be humble about what, 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 a, what a writer can do. Um, but, you know, right now I am really focused on, on giving young people, um, really young people, because the climate movement is getting younger and younger, um, some tools to build that better future. I have a huge amount of faith in Gen Z and how radical this generation is and how intersectional they are. And, and they don't want to have to choose between caring about people and caring about animals and caring about the earth and caring about each other. They want to go deep. They want, they want holistic change because they, they know they're growing up amidst systemic failure on multiple fronts. And so um, what I'm trying to do is, is kind of give some ammo to that intersectional climate movement that unlike, I think, our generation of climate activists, 
is led by young people of color, Black people of color. I think they are not repeating our mistakes so far. Um, they are correcting the mistakes of, of, of the white climate movement. Um, you know, I say our, I'm not including you, Rev, but like the, the big green groups. Um, and so I'm just, I'm just trying to support that generation right now as much as I can and as much as they'll let me um, and lift them up and, and, and just, just, um, just, just show my gratitude for their courage and for the fact that they're fighting with such tenacity and, 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 and the good kind of radicalism. Our guest today is Naomi Klein, journalist, author, and the Gloria Steinem Endowed Chair at Rutgers University. And I am Rev Ewing, your host of The Coolest Show. My sister, thank you so much for being with us. Like what you heard on this episode? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us at Think100Climate and at Hip Hop Caucus on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit thecoolestshow.com where you can take action for climate justice right now. You can also learn more about this podcast and donate to Think 100%, which is a non-profit project. Thank you for listening and all power to the people. It's the coolest show you know.